<laughs> so the question I'm asking is, are you happy? Um, are you satisfied? Are you joy-filled? You know, when we're young, we think that happiness is, is very achievable. The future is just puppies and rainbows. If we're just willing to get out, go out there and grab it, take life by the horns and, and make it ours. And we think, you know, if we just get um, our driver's license, then we could be happy. If we could just graduate from, from high school or college and we keep hitting these milestones and we, we keep pushing happiness a little bit further down the road. So if we just get married, if we could just have kids, if I could just get that retirement account where I want it to be, then we could be happy, then we could be at rest. And then as we get older, we begin to question the possibility of happiness at all. It is something that has seemed to constantly elude us. So how do we find it? St. Augustine dealt with this very question, uh, the, 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 the North African bishop. He grew up in, in a home that really drove him to achieve. And he believed that if he could just get f- away from the margins of his North African home to Rome, to the center of, of civilization and climb the ladder of success, then he would be happy. And he did. And he wound up in Milan and became a very prominent teacher of rhetoric. He was on the inside. And he realized, though, that once he got to where he wanted to get so badly, he wasn't happy. It didn't provide the kind of rest that his heart longed for. And James Smith, Jamie Smith, has recently written a book looking at the life of Augustine. And uh, Smith puts it like this, that Augustine concluded that the heart's hunger is infinite which is why it will ultimately be disappointed with anything that is merely finite. Humans are those strange creatures who can never be fully satisfied by anything created, though that never stops us from trying. And so Augustine's kind of conclusion from all of this, he put very famously when he said, God made us for himself and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in God. Now, you may be thinking, okay, um, happiness is great, but really, do we need to be talking about happiness at a time like this? Uh, You know, it's sort of like talking about our favorite dessert during a famine. It's just, it's not the right time. I actually think it's it's an opportune time to consider this question of happiness. Because think about what's happened. A tiny little microscopic microbe emerged on the other side of the globe from, who knows, maybe bat poo, emerges from that and has made its way across the globe, wreaking havoc in its wake. And things that we seemed as automatic and rock solid as the sun have all ceased. Uh, March Madness, retirement accounts, Um, Little League, baseball, pro baseball, pro sports, college sports, and not to mention, um, we've seen all sorts of weaknesses in our our health systems and and, and in our health itself. And we've lost lives as a result of this tiny little micro. And so as a result of all of that, we are more, uh, our ears are a little bit more open and our hearts and our minds 
are more open to hear certain things now than they were just three weeks ago. So I think the question of happiness is, is an important one for this very moment. And we're going to consider it by looking at Psalm 1. And you have it in your liturgy. Hopefully you read it already. We're going to read it again. But before we read, let's pray. Our Father, we come to you with gratitude that you um, are good, that your creation is marvelous. Even though it, it, we live in a fallen world, uh, the morning here in Oklahoma City was, is, has been gorgeous. And it's a testimony of your goodness that pierces through um, all of the mess of a fallen world. And we ask that you would help us to understand your word better this morning and that we might be transformed. We're not together, but we have a supernatural bond, the Holy Spirit, that is able to unite us even though we're apart. And so we ask for your spirit to do that. Teach us your word. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. So let's read here Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but God's word stands forever. And this is God's word that we've just read. So I want us to consider two things from this text. One, the way of the, the happy or the righteous. So the way of the happy or the righteous. And then secondly, we're going to consider the way, the way of the wicked. And you may think, well, now wait a second. I didn't see the word happy in that, in that psalm. Where are you getting this idea of happiness? You're basing your whole sermon around the idea of happiness. It wasn't even in Psalm 1. Not so fast. Look at verse 1. Blessed is the man. The, the, um, the actual, a better translation of that word, there's another word, Hebrew word, used more commonly for blessed. A better translation is happiness. Happy is the man. Happy is the person. Fulfilled is the person. Satisfied is the person that does what? Well, the, verse, the first verse tells us what this person does not do. We're going to come back to that in a moment. But this happy person, the satisfied person, is rooted they're rooted in a couple of things. And the first thing they're rooted in is the law of the Lord. Verse 2. He, he, he delights in the law of the Lord. And by law, the, the psalmist is not just talking about the Ten Commandments or even the first five books of the Bible, the Torah. But he, the, 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 um, the biblical author, the psalmist here, is talking about all of Scripture, all of God's revelation to us the Lord's instruction to us. This person, um, it says in verse 2, meditates upon this word. It's an interesting word, meditate. It's, it's the same word used to describe in Isaiah, a lion 
growling over its prey as it eats. It's sort of safe. You know, we have a dog. In fact, um, quarantine's making us crazy. We just got a puppy yesterday. But our, our older dog, um, he loves his bone like many dogs do. And when, when, when he has his bone, the whole world disappears. And it's just him and his beloved bone. And he chews on that bone. And he even sometimes makes this little growl of satisfaction under his throat as he chews on that bone. That growl, that's the word. It's hagah. That's the Hebrew. He's hagahing. And this is what the psalmist says. The, 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 the happy person savors, chews upon, meditates upon God's word. Now, I realize that our culture kind of pauses at all this, really. The happy person um, takes delight in something as antiquated and out of touch as the scriptures, as the the Bible. Um, There are so many faith traditions that have so much wisdom and insight to offer the world, and we're going to limit it to, to just this right here, this Bible. Tom Holland, not Peter Parker, the, the British historian who spent his whole career looking at the Greeks and the Romans, has written about it, published about it, lectured about it. Um, he's recently written a book called Dominion, and in it he argues, he, he says, think of it like this. We in the Western world, right, Europe, America, and beyond, it's like we're fish in a little fishbowl, and we're swimming around, and the waters that we swim in are decidedly and distinctly Christian waters. The world that we inhabit, whether Christian or not, if you're just in the West, the world that you inhabit is a world that reflects the reflection and meditation of more than a thousand years upon upon this book. And things that we love, that we see as non-essential and really kind of automatic, are uniquely Christian. They didn't even exist in the ancient world. Things like equal rights. You know, Harvey Weinstein was recently uh, sentenced um, for the things that he did. And there was, there was, and rightfully so, there was outrage across the Western world as a result of the things that came to light that he's been doing for decades. The reason there was widespread outrage at, those, at, at the acts that he did is because of this, because we all have been informed and shaped by the Holy Scripture. This is what Tom Holland is arguing. He's doing exactly what he should do. A person in a position of power can exploit those that are inferior to that person. But not until Christian scriptures come along and this idea of the image of God. And there's neither slave nor free and, and male nor female. It leveled the playing field and gave us this idea of equal rights. Well, you may say, okay, that's fine. That's great. So our culture is swimming in Christian waters largely because of thousands of years of reflection and meditation on what this word means for life. Okay, I get that. But my personally, right, personally, I'll just kind of drink those waters. But my best moments with God are when I am um, hunting or fishing or on a walk outside or with my family. Like, I, I don't, this, this is hard to understand. Think of it like this. Let's imagine that you're, uh, you're in a dating relationship. You're like three dates in. So this is very early on in the relationship. And you go to a restaurant. And you're sitting across from your date, and you're just sort of staring lovingly into one another's eyes. 
you just sort of settled into this infatuation. You're, you're totally into this. Probably everybody else is kind of annoyed by what's going on. But you're look, staring lovingly. And then you begin to ask, so tell me about where you grew up. And your date says, shh, stop. I just want to enjoy this moment forever. What would you think of that? How would you respond to that? You might be a little creeped out by it, first of all. Um, you probably also think, okay, this person doesn't really care about taking this relationship anywhere any deeper. Uh, they're, not, they're not really interested in learning about me. They're more interested in how I make them feel in this moment. The relationship's sort of in orbit around really them and not me. There's no interest in, in getting deeper into the relationship, in actually knowing one another. And so when we say that, that's what we're, that's what we're, like, this is, God has, God has communicated himself to us through this word. And if we're going to deepen our relationship with him and to really know God, it takes spending time in this word, meditating on it, reflecting upon it, chewing on it. And let me say this, King's Cross Church values the word of God and wants to teach it and proclaim it. And you may, you may be with us. Maybe you're even joining us from beyond King's Cross. You stumbled upon us somehow. And here you are. Well, wherever you are, my encouragement is to be a part of a church that takes seriously the power of this word to transform us. It is a key to your happiness and your well-being being a part of a church, a body that, that meditates on and reflects upon this word. It's not a new car. It's going to make you happy. It's not a new, uh, you know, new, the, 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 the best job. It's not the perfect bod or marriage or family. Because remember, all of those things are finite. But this word stands forever. There's truth contained here. And it will utterly transform you, making you a happy person. And so as we meditate upon the word, what happens? We get, we're rooted in the word. And as we are rooted in the word, we get rooted in streams of water. We get rooted in the river. Look at verse 3. We become like trees, strong, healthy, fruitful trees. We prosper. Think about a tree, right? A strong tree weathers a lot. When the winds come, the tree sways in the wind, it doesn't fall down, not a strong and healthy tree. It doesn't fall down. It sways, but it doesn't topple, right? Corona, coronavirus is swept in like, like the winds, really. I mean, it, we, we see the impact of it, but we don't see it. None of us have seen this. We have a microscope, and so it is with the wind. We don't, we don't see the winds. We see the impact. And as those winds of coronavirus come in, we sway in it. We're, we're bothered by it. We're disappointed to see what it's doing. We're hurt. These doctors in Spain have had to make the diff in Italy as well have had to make the difficult decision of shifting care from somebody who's already too far gone to somebody that has a better shot at living, and that's a horrible dilemma. And we hurt over that dilemma. We sway in the midst of this, but we don't topple, we don't break. Um, even even when it comes to things that seem, uh, you know, by comparison, small the little league season, the last little league season that was canceled or the graduation that's not going to happen or the last 
uh, piano recital that's not going to happen. It's a, we, we're disappointed by those things. And that's not good that that happens. We sway, but we don't, we don't fall down. We don't topple. And so the, the text here is saying that the righteous are like trees. And whether it's the winds of coronavirus or something else that comes blowing into your life, the righteous, they sway in the midst of that, but they don't topple. And, and what else do you know about trees? They are a blessing to their environment. They're a blessing to the environment. Think about a tree. It provides all sorts of things, right? It provides, well, in the ancient Near East, in the Middle East, where this context for this psalm can get very hot, and there are not very many trees. And so a tree provided important shade. It provided food. Fruits and nuts come from trees. Trees house creatures, birds and squirrels and insects. Trees support whole ecosystems. Um, trees are a blessing to, to kids. Kids play in trees. They build forts in trees. Um, and then, of course, trees are essential to our, to our everyday life, right? They, they produce the oxygen that keeps us alive. They're a blessing to their environment. So the happy person is, is happy, but they also make other people happy. They're, they're a blessing to others. Um, and that's what King's Cross mission is, right? We, we worship God together. And we give witness to his love for us in Christ. Uh, you, you may have gotten a care package. Hopefully you did. Uh, it contains some books. Uh, and then along with some books, has handcrafted note cards, King's Cross note cards, uh, as well as a neighborly outreach card. And our hope there is, how do we share the love of Christ with our neighbors? Well, we give them this little card on the back. It just says, here we are. We're your neighbors. We want to help out. And on the back side of it, it says, I'm going to the store on this day, the grocery store. Circle the, the time, the afternoon, morning. Give them the date. And if they want to reach out with your contact information, maybe they reach out. And we can help serve others that way. Listen to what Eusebius said about Christians during a global pandemic uh, during the Roman Empire. And Eusebius is a, is a historian, an ancient historian, and he writes this in the 4th century regarding the Christian response to this pandemic. He says, all day long, Christians tended to the dying and to the burial, countless numbers with no one to care for them. Others gathered together from all parts of the city, a multitude of those withered from famine and, and distributed bread to them all. Deeds of these Christians were on everyone's lips, and they glorified the God of the Christians. May it be said of King's Cross Church that we love others. So that's the way of the righteous, the way of the happy person. What about the way of the wicked? Look at verse 4. They're, they're the complete opposite of a tree, right? Verse 4, they're like chaff. They're like chaff. Uh, do you know what chaff is? It is the little external casing of a seed. So, for example, uh, sunflower seeds. Normally, my son had originally scheduled a, a, a baseball tournament this, this past weekend. So, um, there would on a normal year, there would be baseball dugouts all across uh, Edmond and even the country probably with baseball starting up, filled with chaff in the dugout. The little casing of sunflower seeds that have been spit upon the ground of the dugout. 
right? And so that's what chaff is. It's just, it's worthless. Once it's spit out, once it becomes chaff, it is by definition no longer of any purpose, right? And when the winds come, maybe it's the winds of coronavirus, maybe it's another tragedy, um, maybe it's something else, they buckle. They buckle. And look, look at verse 1. Let's go back there. We, uh, so it, the psalmist says that, that the way of the righteous is not this way, verse 1. Um, but the flip side is the way of the wicked is like this. Listen, listen to what it says in verse 1. Look, the wicked walk in the counsel of the wicked, of course. They stand in the way of sinners, and they sit in the seat of scoffers. I don't know if you remember a few weeks back we were together for Bible study, and we talked about the, the topic of worship, and, and the conclusion of that time was we become like the things that we worship. That um, underneath all sin is false worship. That's the fundamental problem. Martin Luther said, you know, regarding the Ten Commandments, he said, if you just take the first commandment, if you get the first commandment right, which is to worship God and have no other gods before God Almighty, if you just got that one right, all the others would flow, right? The fundamental problem, the, the, the problem behind the problem of sin is false worship. And so if we worship the one true living God, we become alive. We're resurrected to life. If we worship a host of idols and other things, parts of creation, we become like those things. We we, we become like the idols that we worship. You know, idols in the ancient world, they had ears and they had eyes. They had noses and mouths, but none of those things worked. They were broken. They were dead and lifeless, and you become dead and lifeless, ultimately, for not worshiping the, the glory of the living God. And in the process, look, look, look at the progression at first, they're walking kind of in and out of the counsel of the wicked, but they're, they're growing increasing. The wicked are growing increasingly stagnant in life. Then they stand in the way of sinners. And then, and then finally, they're fully settled in to the seat of the scoffer, kind of armchair quarterbacking all of life around them. And making fun of oh, the, all the problems of the world. If they, if they just do what I said, all the problems of the world are out there. They're deflecting um, their own sense of sin, and they're just scoffing at the world at large, disengaged from the world. And in the process, they grow lifeless, the wicked. They grow lifeless. They grow purposeless. They grow rootless and weightless. And, of course, the winds come and they blow. They blow away like chaff. And that's the benefit of coronavirus, because it has blown a lot of things away that we otherwise would like to place ultimate hope in. Um, and and, 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 and if it, coronavirus has shown those things to be actually quite brittle. And so this, this moment is reminding us that there is one thing that is secure in this world, and it is the one true living God. And when we place our hope in these brittle things that we are tempted to do, we become like them. We become brittle. And ultimately, we become worthless. Why do the wicked become worthless? Well, um, because you were built to worship God. 
That's why you made it, were made. That is your chief purpose, right? The, the Westminster says, what's the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. That's our purpose, to worship. The wicked don't do that. You know, if you don't do what you're made to do, you become worthless. Think of it this way. A bicycle helmet is a really good thing, right? So long as you strap that thing on your head when you go out on a bike ride. Or maybe do something else that's sort of semi-dangerous, climbing a wall or whatever. But let's say that you took that bike helmet and you got another one and you strapped them on your feet to run a 5K. Well, all of a sudden, that bike helmet has become pretty much worthless. It's going to slow you down. You're going to be tripping over. You, pro- you won't even be able to finish the run. It'd be sort of like a Guinness Book of World Records accomplishment if you actually finish the run with those helmets on, right? Because the bike helmet is not serving its purpose at that point, and it's worthless, as worthless as a hammer is trying to eat cereal with it, right? There's, it's, it's, it's not built for that, and therefore it's worthless, And so, secondly, not only do the wicked become worthless because they're not fulfilling their purpose of worshiping the one true God, they also are unable to withstand the judgment. Look at verse 5. The wicked will not stand in the judgment. The tree stands in the winds of coronavirus and the winds of, of, of other tragic winds that come into our lives, even in the winds of God's judgment the righteous tree will stand. But the wicked topples under God's holy judgment. And the judgment of God is something that we maybe struggle with, the idea. Um, In fact, I preached a sermon a couple weeks ago, a few weeks ago at City Press on this very topic, and I'd love to kind of like deal with it because it's a big topic to deal with, the judgment of God. But let me say this. We want God's judgment. We want things made right as humans. And it's probably the truth that um, the the people that have the most difficulty with this idea of the judgment of God, it tends to be kind of a uniquely bourgeois difficulty, middle-class, cushy sort of existence. That's where the trouble lies with the judgment of God. If you talk to the refugee, If you talk to the oppressed or the slave, all of which abound in our world, they not only do they not have problems with the judgment of God, it is kind of the one thing keeping them sane as they deal with those exploiting them. So the judgment of God is is not a a bad thing. Okay, look at verse 6. It says, by contrast... The happy person, the righteous person, God knows their way or road or path. Those are all, uh, the word is is derek, the Hebrew word. Um, God knows the way or the path of of the righteous. What does that mean? Well, there's a pastor in Tulsa in our denomination that got on, he, posted a little video on Facebook last week where he he spoke of an experience in his life where he he had his, several years ago when his kids were younger, they were in fourth and fifth grade, two of his boys, he told them to hop on their bikes. He gave them their backpack. He packed it full of their library books. They love trips to the library. And he said, I want you guys to 
get on your bikes, ride down the bike path down to the library, which they'd never done. This is like a big adventure for them on their bikes, ride to the library and return the books and spend time at the library. And he gave them a map and he gave them a cell phone and off they went. And so, and then this pastor goes to this bridge where he can kind of see the whole route unfold. And he goes and he watches them and he sees them and they're plugging along on the bike trail. And they had one turn to make and they missed, they missed their turn. So they wind up on this pretty busy street and they walk away down the street. And it's pretty clear. They've kind of figured out that they, they're off, off course. And so they turn around and they just sit down right on the side of this busy, busy road. And so he calls them and he says, what are you guys going to do now? And they said, what do you, what do you mean? Well, I've been watching, like, I wasn't going to just let you go to the library without any sort of supervision. I've been watching you like a hawk this whole time. And how are you going to get there? And so he sort of helped guide them to the library. The psalmist is saying, look, God knows our way. He's, He's watching us on this road of life. He's with us. In fact, the Hebrew, he, he knows the way of the Lord. You know, the, the Hebrew uh, word for know, uh, it's the same word used to describe uh, sexual relations, right? Abraham knew his wife. The, the, the word connotes not just like God understands and is intellectually aware of where we are in life. No, he, he's intimately, covenantally connected to us on this road of life. So that's Psalm 1. What do you choose? What do you choose? Do you choose the way of the wicked or the way of the righteous? You may think, well, that's, that's a pretty obvious. Uh, who wants to be worthless and chaff in this world? Don't I want to be like a big tree that's righteous? And you may think, I, that's certainly what I want, but man, I am not righteous. You know, I, in fact, personally, I felt my sin in a new way as I deal with the frustrations that come with disruption and new obligations. I'm homeschool dad now of three, along with my wife and trying to start a church. How do you juggle all that? Um, and trying to do all this electronic communication. I'm feeling my sin in my heart bubbling all the time to the surface. So how can I even call myself righteous? How do we get righteous? Let me say this too, by the way, the wicked don't worry about their own unrighteousness, right? They, they, they're, they're, they're the, if if the world could just be like them, then it would be a better world. They don't see themselves as having any problems. The righteous though, ironically feel the weight of their sins. So, so then the question is, How do we get righteous? And here's the answer. You have to get your roots in the river, right? You have to get the roots of your life in the river, in the streams of water, the life-giving streams of water. Jesus, when talking to a woman at the well in John's gospel, he offers, so she's drawing water from the well, right? And he offers her, he says, I can give you living water. And you drink this water and you'll never thirst again. And in the book of Revelation, this river of life is, is described that flows from the Father and th- flows through the Son, through Jesus. This river of Jesus that flows and gives life to all, uh, all that needs it. 
So the next question is, how do you access the river? How do you get your roots in the river? How do you get your roots in Christ? It's a good question. Look at, this is so important. Look at verse 3. How, how, does the riv- how does the tree get to the river, to the stream? Does it, does it survey the, the landscape, the horizon, and look for the best river, and then, you know, see it, and it hikes up its bark, and it just, like, runs over to the river? Does it pack its bark full of uh, provisions and make a long journey through life to find the great river of life? That's not what, that's not what it says. Look, verse 3, this tree is planted. Rivers don't, or trees don't plant themselves. That is a, the tree is passive in that. It's planted. And this is the heart of the gospel. Look, that's how we get Jesus. It's grace. It's gift. God the Father, because of his great love, plants us in Christ. He forgives us. He frees us. He gives us new life. He gives us Christ's righteousness. And this is what, when Christians sing amazing grace, this is what we're talking about. We didn't do anything to gain this righteousness, this rest and happiness that is found only in Christ. It came just as the rains come down to the earth and give them their life-giving waters, right? It just, it's received. It's a gift. It's grace. Um. This is so unique, by the way, this idea of God's grace. And this is why meditating, because this is what primarily what this book is about, is God's gracious intervention in a fallen world. And if you meditate on that, it will transform you. It will transform the world, and it has. We're still breathing, drinking, taking in Christian waters as a result of, of, of the radical transforming power of this grace, not just in individual lives, but in cultures as a whole. And this is why we sing in the old hymn, the only fitness that God requires of us, the only kind of righteousness or put togetherness that God requires of us is that we would know our need of him, of Christ. So what does that mean for us? Ask God to plant you in Christ so that you can grow, so that you can grow not only to be a blessing to others as you will be in Christ, but also so that you can finally find the happiness that your heart longs for and find your rest in Christ. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word. As Augustine said, you've made us for ourselves, for, for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they find our rest in you, God. So we ask that you would help us find our rest in you, even amidst quarantine. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.